Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Today's show will be something of an immigration law roundup, addressing a handful of consequential matters that saw development in the Ninth Circuit this week. In one case, CJLG versus Sessions, the circuit voted to reconsider en banc whether due process in removal proceedings guarantees an undocumented indigent minor the right to government-sponsored counsel. The unanimous panel previously answered that question in the negative, holding that the Constitution and immigration statutes require no more than that a minor in such proceedings have the opportunity to obtain counsel if he or she can pay the legal bill or find pro bono representation. Two guests will join us to speak about this now reopened issue. Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies will explain why he thinks the original panel here got it right. He says the statutory law is clear and that constitutional calculus tips against the undocumented minor in this case because he says even unrepresented parties before immigration courts get reliably fair treatment and some assistance from judges in developing factual records, supporting any viable arguments meriting relief. Arthur also cites the purportedly high financial burden that providing court-appointed attorneys in these situations would entail. Conversely, Stephen Kang, an attorney with the ACLU in San Francisco who represents the minor in this case, contends that it's fundamentally unfair to expect children to grasp Byzantine immigration statutes and regulations, and that that complexity, combined with the weighty interests at stake, make it such that constitutional due process is only provided where minors are insured access to attorneys that can help them present their strongest cases. Then we'll hear from Kevin Johnson, dean of the UC Davis School of Law, about another immigration law ruling rendered this week. In that one, the Ninth Circuit joined with the Second and Seventh Circuits to hold that certain egregious immigration law violations, here the detention of an individual seemingly without any other basis than his Hispanic heritage, can be remedied only by the termination of removal proceedings that grow out of such a detention. A fairly drastic remedy, one only to be employed where the panel said a violation by immigration officials shocks the conscience. Dean Johnson will help us figure out exactly what sort of violations might meet that standard. And last, we'll be joined by our immigration reporter, Chase DiFelici Antonio, to discuss the Attorney General's latest tweaks to the immigration court system, one that seeks to lessen the discretion judges have to dismiss deportation actions. But before hearing from our guests, two quick Reminders, don't forget, as always, CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast to find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Complete that and one California CLE credit can be yours. And for the past few months now, our podcast has been available on the go. Look for us by searching weekly appellate report in iTunes or the podcast app on your iOS devices. Okay, Andrew Arthur is a resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies and previously was an Article One immigration judge himself. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. At the outset, I might ask you, you spent eight years as an immigration judge, I understand, in York, Pennsylvania. Is that correct? And did you encounter cases like the one in this case where there would be minors essentially representing themselves in these proceedings? I actually had jurisdiction over the Burke's family shelter, which was the original family shelter. I never had any minors that represented themselves because we had a strong pro bono bar in Pennsylvania. And so generally, those cases were taken up either by uh, student attorneys or by pro bono attorneys. That's one piece of the the panel opinion and a few months ago that is not really directly kind of fleshed out, but there seems to be hints of that that fact or the, the the usual availability of pro bono options for parties like this? Is it, in your experience, in most places, is that fairly common that pro bono options are available? Yes, actually it is. Again, there's a uh, strong pro bono bar in Pennsylvania. And there, uh, in fact, I would teach a class every year for about four hours to private attorneys who were interested in doing pro bono work in immigration. So, you know, we would regularly train them, and the, the trade-off was that if uh, you took the class, then generally you had to take one uh, case per year. But yeah, generally finding uh, attorneys for minors or for families was not an issue. Okay, then we'll go ahead and dive into the central question here. That'll now be reconsidered by an, an en banc panel in the Ninth Circuit, that question being whether immigrants without any legal status, minors, uh, are entitled to appointed counsel at government expense in removal proceedings. Were you surprised at all that this case, it was a unanimous 3-0 ruling when it came down, got the en banc order at all? 
I was surprised that it got the en banc order because uh, the, the law is pretty clear on this. The INA is clear that while you're entitled to counsel, it's at no expense to the government. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the law. With respect to the constitutional question, I think that the panel decision actually fleshed it out extremely well and rather exhaustively. A more crucial issue as a former uh, government attorney is I'm not 100% sure who would end up paying for this if uh, the Ninth Circuit, hearing the matter in bank, would determine that, in fact, there was a right to paid counsel for these individuals. Under the Anti-Deficiency Act, of course, Congress has to appropriate money, and no such money, to the best of my knowledge, has ever been appropriated because, of course, there is no right to counsel in removal proceedings. So maybe if I set out a bit more, if you would, what do you think the next kind of question to be answered. What, what, what would happen on, on that front as to that issue were the ruling to be reversed here by an en banc court? I think that if that were to happen, that the uh, Justice Department would seek a stay from the Supreme Court. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if the Ninth Circuit were to reverse, the, the en banc panel were to reverse that, it would probably do so and stay its own decision pending a determination by the Department of Justice as to whether it sh- it will be filing a petition for certiorari with the Supreme Court. Do you have a sense of the sort of jurisdiction of that potential future ruling if the Ninth Circuit were to declare that um, minors in, in this, this situation were entitled to appointed counsel? Would that um, purport to apply to, to all um, removal proceedings around the country, do you think? It all depends on, I don't think that they were seeking injunctive relief. They were only seeking relief in this particular case. So it would only apply to cases arising out of the Ninth Circuit, but still I believe that's about 40% of all immigration cases in the United States. So it would have a rather broad scope. And again, other courts of appeals may decide that they're going to follow the decision of the Ninth Circuit. In particular, I can see the Fourth Circuit doing that. Okay, uh, maybe we could just dig into to a couple of the, the main arguments that will now be re-mustered uh, before the, the Ninth Circuit here. Um, as a kind of preliminary constitutional matter, and correct me if I'm wrong, but no one is asserting, neither the government nor um, any other parties, that the Fifth Amendment due process right is, is not enjoyed by undocumented minors in these removal proceedings, right? That is sort of stipulated that it, it does apply to, to those parties. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. Then what is the, the main argument advanced by here the ACLU representing uh, CJ, the, the, the minor? It seems like it sort of goes on a couple of tracks, one statutory and then one uh, constitutional. Is that right? I'm not familiar with the statutory right, but I believe that they are arguing as a matter of due process that there would, in fact, be due process rights to counsel in order in those proceedings. Okay. I, th- I think the um, – so that – the piece of the statute that you mentioned before referencing that parties in these contexts would have the right to counsel, but at no ex- expense to the government. I think there's another division, another subsection in there also saying that a full and fair hearing would be provided. And I, I thought there was some argument running along the lines that without appointed counsel guaranteed, it'd be hard for a minor to be guaranteed a, a fair hearing because the minor wouldn't likely know exactly what's going on in, in such a hearing. Right. The uh, Section 292 of the INA is very clear that there is a right to counsel in removal proceedings and appeal proceedings, but uh, privilege of being represented is at no expense of the government. It, there's also reference uh, to the to it in uh, Section 240 of the INA. Let's see. So it would be 240B4B. The fair hearing provision is the argument that they have the right to a fair fair hearing, but you know plainly the specific statutory statement would overcome that. Yeah, that seemed to be the line of reasoning that the panel used. That that, that the previous section was more specific in providing that the right to counsel would be at no expense to the government. So. That would conflict and, and as being more specific, supersede the uh, B4B section that you mentioned. Well, t- actually, the preceding section, uh, 240B4A, states that the alien shall have the privilege of being represented at no expense of the government. Right. So the specific provision, both in 
240B4A and in 292 both make it clear that there is no right to counsel, to pay counsel. Maybe just sort of thinking about it, not exactly in reference to those specific subsections of, of the code um, and as a more general common sense matter, do you, what, do you, what do you make of the, the thrust of the argument that it, it does seem like it's hard for a, a young person who perhaps doesn't speak English to receive a, a fair hearing upon which his ability to stay in the country depends without some assistance from someone who you know knows the first thing about immigration law, a, I think you'd agree, a quite complex body of, of American law. The immigration judge himself or herself is responsible for ensuring fairness in the hearing and generally, and I've, you know, had many hearings involving pro se applicants incumbent upon the judge then to, you know, ensure that that occurs and to ask appropriate questions to flesh out the claim that is made. Immigration judges are slightly different from uh, most other judges as the decision of the panel decision makes clear with respect to that. And again, you know, as it relates to a particular social group, you know, these could be, you know, very fine points that even experienced counsel can have issues with. So in that instance, you know, the judge would question the applicant with respect to the claim to determine the basis for it. There are a couple of different precedential supports that attorneys supporting um, CJ here tried to rely on. One of them is the, I believe it's a U.S. Supreme Court decision in Enrique Galt, which extended a guaranteed right to counsel to minors in uh, outside of the criminal context, a civil del- uh, delinquency proceeding. What's the difference of opinion between the attorneys for the minor here and, and the panel as to, I guess, what exactly that Enrique Galt opinion provides and, and, and where it's circumscribed to in the panels you not give a right to appointing counsel here? Well, as the panel noted, quote, due to the awesome prospect of incarceration that could result from an adverse ruling, the child and his parents must be notified of the child's right to be represented by counsel retained by them. Or if they're unable to afford counsel, the counsel will be appointed to represent the child, close quote. Um, and that was from Galt and argued that the respondent or the petitioner in that case, in uh, CJ, argued that uh, as a general rule, children cannot receive fair hearings with absent counsel. But the panel found that that was unpersuasive because none of the cited authorities go so far as to create a right to government-funded, court-appointed counsel for aliens illegally present in the United States. Even independent, there being a clear precedent to support CJ's position here, of course, a, a constitutional argument could still nonetheless be made. Tell me briefly about the the constitutional math here that applies. I, the panel laid out the this three-part Matthews test, whereby a, a party could show a, a violation of, of a due process right based on some balancing of the, the party's interests and the, I guess, fairness of the proceeding in the event that counsel was not appointed, and then also the the interest of the government and sort of the burden of providing an appointed counsel. Tell me a bit about how that, that calculus works. With respect to that, you know, they did the balancing test and they determined, uh, I believe, that the last two prongs were not actually met in CJ's case here. Yeah. It seemed like the panel relied fairly heavily on the idea that these uh, hearings are fair whether or not a minor is represented by counsel because of what the point you mentioned earlier that an immigration judge is uh, it's incumbent upon him or her to develop a factual record. And I guess is the idea that if a minor has justifiable reasons that might support, say, an asylum claim, the immigration judge is – it is his or her duty to bring – uh, facts supporting that potential claim out? Oh, absolutely, yes. And in fact, it's well established that that, that duty rests upon not only the immigration judge, but in certain instances, of course, as my former boss, Janet Reno, said, justice is done, or the Department of Justice wins when uh, justice is done. So uh, as a trial attorney in cases involving pro bono aliens, I would attempt to elicit any evidence that would support an application if one were appropriate. Then I guess walk me through how you see this case going forward now to the on panel. Um, do you have any thoughts on 
what the the perhaps most likely outcome is. Obviously, if the circuit voted to take another look, that indicates some perhaps inclination to uh, to decide this one differently. Well, I mean, needless to say, any time that there's an en banc order, it's either a very important uh, issue and plainly one that they want to resolve, or one that they want to reverse. I don't, I can't really tell you in this particular instance which way the panel is going to go. Needless to say, Ninth Circuit en banc is different from the rest of the country, just because of the large number of judges and the way that they break up the panels. So, again, though, there is a clear statutory statement at two different places within the INA that notes that there is a right to counsel, but at no expense of the government. And so, you know, overturning that, I think, is going to be a heavy lift. That doesn't mean that the Ninth Circuit's not going to, but I would really question whether the Supreme Court would go along with uh, that determination. Which one last one? Do you have a sense of what that that, that burden on the government would be that third prong of the constitutional test were appointing counsel required in hearings like this. The the panel suggested it would be a fairly large financial obligation for the government to meet, although the panel did stress that that wasn't the reason they were holding against CJ, that the main reason was because these hearings are, are by nature pretty fair. But they did say that it would be a fairly large burden. Do you, do you have any information or research on, on that point? Yeah, I mean, the the government in that case actually discussed the amount of money that uh, would be involved, and it was significant. I believe they said it was something like 68% of uh, EOR's budget, $276.1 million per year. We go ahead and leave it there for now and see how this case uh, plays out in the next few months. Uh, Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies, thanks very much for being on our podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. Stephen Kang is a detention attorney with the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project, and he's part of the team representing CJLG, and the matter now reopened for en banc review before the Ninth Circuit. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you for having me. So uh, before getting to kind of the nuts and bolts of the legal and constitutional arguments that you have presented and and now will present again on behalf of the client you're representing here, CJLG, Maybe just broadly speaking, why, in your view, should uh, it be a constitutional rule that in, in the context, in this context, undocumented minors should be provided counsel if they cannot afford one uh, on their own? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the simple answer in many respects is that it's just the right thing to do. I don't know if you or your listeners have had the chance to go to immigration court and observe some hearings where children are forced to go uh, try to represent themselves without the benefit of lawyers. But I think, you know, these are court proceedings. They happen in front of judges. They involve incredibly complex legal issues. And perhaps most importantly, the government pays for a prosecutor from the Department of Homeland Security security to represent it in every single case, including cases involving kids. And so if you can imagine that picture of, of having a child as young as two or three years old, sometimes younger, that's happened too, all the way up through like age 17, having to litigate in a courtroom addressing extremely complex legal questions against a trained lawyer who is educated in immigration law and procedure, I don't know how you could look at that kind of set up and think that that is fair for the child. And so all we're asking for is a chance to even the playing field and give the lawyer the same, I mean, give the child, I'm sorry, the same advantage that the government gives itself. Okay. One one thing that, that seems to sort of lurk sort of maybe tacitly in the, the panel's original opinion here from a few months ago is that that problem that, that you describe is often uh, taken care of by the availability of, of pro bono attorneys, uh, such as maybe ones from the mm-hmm. ACLU's Immigrants Rights, Immigrants Rights Project, in that mm-hmm. it's not all that common that a, children, a child would be up there all by himself and that uh, w- this problem that you described would, be, would, would occur. How, you know, what do you say on that score? What, what is the availability like of pro bono options for minors in, in removal proceedings? 
You know, what, you know, we're obviously extremely grateful to the pro bono bar, you know, by which I mean attorneys from private law firms who donate their time to work with individuals who are in removal proceedings, including children. And obviously, there's a health, very healthy nonprofit community, especially here in California, that spends a lot of time representing kids who are facing deportation. But, you know, we wouldn't be here if that were enough. You know, there's Children, you know, despite all the resources that go into representing kids from both the nonprofit and the pro bono bar side of things, as well as despite all the effort and the resources that go into that, you know, there's still a lot of kids who need lawyers and don't get them. And so, you know, if the and it would be one thing if the government, you know, were to say, you know, we don't, you know, if the kid. We won't proceed against the kid unless they have a lawyer. It would be one thing if the government were to take that position, but that's not what they do. What they say is that we're going to proceed against every kid, regardless of whether you have an attorney. And so either you, kid or child, you should you know, use your own resources to try to find a lawyer to help you, or we're going to you know, go forward with the case. I and mean, once again, you know, that doesn't seem like a fair system to us. So. Sure. Now, the... The, the notion of a constitutionally guaranteed right to counsel, you know, largely mm-hmm. exists in the in the context of criminal law. So here we're outside mm-hmm. of that context in civil immigration enforcement. So, what are the kind of arguments that you have to employ uh, to support your view that that reasoning supporting attorneys guaranteed there in criminal law context that that reasoning should also sort of be uh, applied in in this non criminal context? Yeah, I mean, I think I might push back on the premise a little bit, which is to say that, you know, obviously there's a recognized Sixth Amendment right to look to counsel to represent you in criminal cases, or most criminal cases, I should say. But uh, there's, you know, the notion that people deserve legal representation in civil legal proceedings is hardly new. And I think as one of the primary, one of the primary authorities that we cite in our briefs and that we use in our arguments is that, you know, there's been a long recognized right since, I believe, the 1960s that the Supreme Court recognized that uh, children in juvenile delinquency proceedings are entitled to lawyers to represent them. And those are civil uh, proceedings and where it's been long established that children should have attorneys to represent them in recognition of the complexity of the cases as well as the gravity of what they're facing in the juvenile delinquency context. And so if you take that, you know, guarantee seriously, there's no reason why those same principles wouldn't apply here to the deportation context where, once again, these are very serious legal proceedings that are very complex and where the state are extraordinarily high. mm -hmm. Yeah, um, sort of jumping off on that point, it seems to relate to one Mm -hmm. question that the panel in the original opinion left open. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they said that there is generally a presumption against a guarantee of counsel as sort of a more general rule, unless personal freedom sort of is at stake. And the panel acknowledged that this is kind of an open question, whether the consequence of, of being removed from the country is, you know, on par with losing personal freedom in the um, action of being sent to prison at, at the end of a criminal proceeding. I don't know if you'd noticed that or uh, had any thoughts on that particular question. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes to sort of a disagreement that we had um, with the panel to be totally <laughs> a respectful disagreement that we had with the panel to be totally frank about sort of what uh, the constitutional law concerning the civil right to counsel really requires. And, you know, I think they suggested that um, it was limited to context where physical liberty was the only thing at stake. But we don't think that the law really is quite so clear on that point. Mm-hmm. And for example, you know, there's a case called Turner v. Rogers, which we cite in our briefs that addresses essentially like the right to counsel in civil contempt proceedings um, for failure to pay various forms of child support. And, you know, I think Turner sort of sets forth a general framework for when you, how you think about uh, when there should be a, a civil right to counsel in a civil case. And it doesn't really make any one particular factor per se dispositive, but there's sort of two elements that they really emphasize in Turner that both of which are re- present here, which is first of all, the complexity of the case. And secondly, whether the person on the other side is represented or not. And so we have both those things here. We have extraordinarily complicated cases, as you know, any lawyer who's involved in immigration work should know, you know, it's this area of law is extremely intricate, you know, a very complex statutory and regulatory scheme, along with a very diverse and, you know, wide body of case law that sort of deals with immigration issues. And then, like I said earlier, you know, the government is represented in every single case, including uh, cases against kids. And so, you know, when just looking at those two factors alone, you know, we think we have a very good argument under the Supreme Court civil counsel jurisprudence that counsel is required here. Now, there's some some pretty 
clearly, or at least seemingly clearly on point and countervailing statutory language that the Ninth Circuit panel references right at the outset of their opinion, that being Section 1362 of the Chapter 8 of the U.S. Code, that parties in proceedings like this shall have the privilege of, of being represented, but at no expense to the government, is the quote. How do you mm-hmm. address that statutory language and, and why, in your view, isn't it as problematic for your side as the original panel for the Ninth Circuit seems to think that it is? Yeah, you know, our reading of that language is not, you know, once again, that's an area where we have some disagreement with the um, original panel opinions analysis, because, you know, in our view, what that language is really going to is that for a while, it wasn't really recognized that in every single instance where an immigration matter was at issue, that you even had the right to bring your own lawyer. You know, so sometimes there were instances when you were having interviews with INS officers or like that kind of thing that, you know, it was not clear whether you... um, even if a lawyer was like knocking on the door trying to get into the room, it wasn't clear that you could open the door and let the lawyer in to um, help represent you. I know that sounds strange, but like there's sort of like a lot of context where, you know, the government was arguing, I believe that, you know, you didn't even have the right to bring your own lawyer to the table. And so, and that's really what INA 292, as we call it, or AUSC 1362, that language, which, you know, is the uh, source of that language that you cite. That's really clarifying that when you're in removal proceedings before an immigration judge, you have the right to bring your own lawyer to the table and just sort of clarify and make clear that you have that ability. That doesn't really say anything, though, about what the government's obligation is to provide lawyers in order to make your hearings fundamentally fair. Um, and as, as we have noted in our briefs and in our arguments, you know, there's another provision of the immigration statute, which is, you know, kind of colloquially called the full and fair hearing provision that, you know, requires that every non-citizen who's facing deportation should have a reasonable opportunity to challenge the evidence against them and to present evidence on their own behalf. And, you know, children can't do that on their own. Children can't avail themselves of that reasonable opportunity without the assistance of a lawyer. Setting aside maybe that statutory argument for a second and moving to Mm -hmm. the the more constitutional law argument uh, springing from the Fifth Mm -hmm. Amendment due process guarantee, what does that look like? The the framework that the panel sets up is a kind of a three-part test from a case Matthews versus Diaz. Is that also the approach that you walk through in supporting your claim that that's a, that three-part test involves sort of the interests of the, the p- petitioner at issue and government's interest and it's a balancing test also including kind of how fair the proceedings would be without the party having the assistance of a counsel. Does your constitutional argument uh, work through that framework mostly? Um, it, it works through that framework. I think there's sort of two threads to our constitutional argument, you know, and the first thread is something we've already talked about, which is, you know, there's a body of jurisprudence that comes from the Supreme Court and other courts about when a person in a civil legal case should be guaranteed the right to a lawyer, um, particularly when there's some kind of government, when, you know, p- particularly in cases against the government. Um, and so that's cases like Galt and cases like Turner v. Roger and Lassiter and like a sort of line of Supreme Court authority that addresses that issue in different contexts. And so we draw from that body of law, and I think the panel addresses it in part. Um, but there's also, you know, the sort of more general um, three-part Matthews balancing test that you're referring to now that sort of looks at this sort of totality of different kinds of factors um, and sort of kind of runs the proceeding through that totality of factors to sort of conclude, to determine what kind of processes do. And so, you know, that's the second thread of our argument, which is that uh, under the Matthews balancing test, counsel is also required here as well. Yeah. In our view, it just confirms what the what the Supreme Court civil counsel law already says. So. Sure. And I assume it's because, so just to unpack a couple of pieces of that test a little bit further, the second one, as I understand it, sets up a scenario where a party goes through these hearings without the assistance of an attorney and sort of just previews whether or not, even without that assistance, the the party would have a a good Mm -hmm. shot at having a fair hearing. And for Mm -hmm. a handful of reasons, it seems like the panel thinks these removal proceedings in front of immigration judges are just sort of inherently pretty fair because the judge is tasked with developing the factual record and sort of, even if the immigrant does not know the right way to sort of frame an argument that might help him or her. The judge is supposed to help that immigrant make that argument if he uh, or she can discern facts that support it. I, I take it you're probably less sanguine about the inherent fairness and the assistance provided by immigrant judges in these hearings. Yeah, no, I think that's certainly a fair characterization. <laughs> I think, um, you know, and I think one thing that sort of has leaped out to us about the panel opinion upon reading it a few times is that, you know, almost nothing about it really addresses the specific situation of kids, you know, because I think, you know, we have a lot of, you know, 
issues with this characterization of what an immigration judge can really do in the context of a hearing. And for that, you know, we can also point you to an amica, well, actually two amicus briefs that a group of former immigration judges submitted in our case uh, once uh, at the merit stage and again on the rehearing stage that explained why even the sort of most well-intentioned immigration judge, you know, armed with whatever tools that they might have, you know, can't you know, by himself or herself, make the hearing fair, especially for a child. You know, they face enormous docket pressure. There's sort of a lot of different kinds of forces that work on them to require them to process cases in a certain way. They also, you know, because of their role, they can't be seen as intervening for one side or another. And so they can't, you know, coach the kid in what to say. They can't, you know, be, be viewed as like advocating for the kid in any respect. And so, you know, because of that, there's a lot of limitations on what they can really do. I mean, the briefs really go into that in very, in a lot of like a very clear detail. And I think, you know, if you're sort of, you know, paying attention at all to sort of what the current Department of Justice is doing to sort of further restrict a due process rights for people who are in deportation proceedings, I think they're sort of, once again, it casts a lot of doubt on this notion that, you know, immigration courts can sort of, you know, essentially help kids go through their cases. And I think the second piece of that is, is that, you know, once again, these are kids. So even like if you could grant that the immigration court could, you know, help inter- ask questions of the kid or develop the record, as a, a panel opinion puts it. You know, there's limits to how much you can do that with a child. <laughs> you know, a child who doesn't even know what questions to put forward, doesn't know what they should be saying, may or may not understand what the immigration judge is really asking or what they're trying to get at. You know, and so when you think about, you know, put it in that context, which, you know, in our view, respectfully, you know, the panel opinion doesn't did not engage with as much. You know, there's sort of a real question about, you know, even if immigration courts could do all those things, can they really do that effectively and fairly for kids? So. Sure. Okay, then maybe just the, the last piece of that three-part balancing test also then incorporates the government interest, and a big piece of that is, is the governmental burden borne by, say, providing uh, attorneys in all these types of cases. I think the the number the government put forward was uh, roughly $276 million per year. That would be two uh, make sure that undocumented minors in removal proceedings um, had the availability of counsel. Um, you know, to that piece of the totality of the circumstances inquiry, what uh, what is your side's argument or, or response? Yeah, I think, you know, we have a dispute with the government here about the costs, basically. You know, I think they have, you know, this sort of what seems to us like an overestimated view of like of how much money it would cost. And I think we did our own sort of estimation and analysis and came to a much smaller figure or something like $17.5 million is what we said in our reply brief. Um, and that's even assuming that none of the kids um, in uh, – and, and I guess our, our number should be um, – uh, limited to, you know, our numbers are uh, limited to the Ninth Circuit, but they assume that, you know, they're sort of largely address, assume that kids can't find lawyers on their own. So even assuming that kids in the Ninth Circuit could not find lawyers on their own, you know, the number comes to about $17.5 million. But, you know, when you think about it, you know, once again, you know, the government pays for a lawyer for itself, you know, for every single case, you know, for every single case they prosecute. So once again, like to make a proceeding fair, you know, why can't they pay, you know, uh, to level the playing field? Why can't they pay for the kid's lawyer as well? Okay, maybe just one last one for you. Do you have any thoughts as to mm-hmm. the potential path forward for this case? Does it seem, and I don't know if this is the kind of thing that attorneys working on cases like this have in mind at this stage, but does it seem like the sort of one that might uh, find its way up to the Supreme Court after it is on bank? review. It uh, seems at least to have the potential that the Ninth Circuit could reverse the panel, um, which would certainly put them at odds with the current administration and which seemed like it might be the sort of case that would be ripe for a, a review by the high court. Yeah, I think to be honest, it's too early to say, you know, I think we're very obviously happy about the grant of rehearing, but, um, you know, there's sort of a lot of phases to get through before we reach that point. And so right now we're just sort of focused on the arguments that are going to go happen in, in December, hopefully. So, sure. yeah. Great. Well, then I can let you get back to uh, to crafting those. Uh, Stephen Kang, really appreciate you taking <laughs> some time out for our, our show. Thanks again. Sure. Thank you. This week, the Ninth Circuit issued for the second time its opinion in Sanchez v. Sessions, a previous ruling including Judge Harry Pregerson's vote and opinion was withdrawn, and now the reconstituted panel with Judge Paez has largely restated what the original opinion held, which is certain egregious immigration law violations on the part of officials have no other remedy than the termination 
of removal proceedings that grow out of those violations. Kevin Johnson is the dean of the UC Davis School of Law and maybe a Paul's professor of public interest law and Chicana Chicano studies. He's here to help unpack that standard set up by the Ninth Circuit. Dean Johnson, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay, so this case was sort of reissued this week, Sanchez versus Sessions. It originally came down at the end of last year, right? But just after Harry Pegerson had passed away, it included his vote, and so I suppose it was withdrawn and, and now has, has reissued. Just before kind of diving into the details of the case, nothing really changed too much between the original holding and, and this one. Is, is that fair to say? I think that the basic holding is the same, and it's going to be, case will be remanded to, to consider uh, whether or not there is an egregious violation that justifies suppression of the evidence. Uh, in this immigration case. Right. Okay, so we'll get into exactly what it might mean to have an egregious violation that uh, would mm-hmm. would exist. In, in this case, we have the petitioner, uh, Luis Sanchez, who has been in the States for, I believe, over 30 years after having originally entered without authorization. He goes on a ill-fated fishing trip, is uh, picked up by the Coast Guard, needs to get towed back to shore when his motor dies. And he is then ID'd by the Coast Guard, who it sounds like suspect he might be in the country without authorization. He possesses a California driver's license, right? Well, in California, you're eligible for a driver's license if you're undocumented or if you have legal authorization. So there's no problem with him having a California driver's license. It's a legal matter. It isn't necessarily proof of lawful immigration status. It's, It's proof of eligibility to drive. But, but he did have a California driver's license, and there's no indication from the record that he had done anything unlawfully to secure that license. So nonetheless, his detention continues, and he is handed over to the Customs and Border Patrol, who discover his unlawful status and begin removal proceedings. At that stage, Sanchez seeks to suppress the evidence obtained in the detention based on a statutory violation of a code of federal regulation and that requires immigration officers to have some reasonable suspicion based on some articulable facts. It sounds like a Fourth Amendment sort of analog here before that officer can and can detain a person. And so the, the assertion is that Coast Guard officer did not have reasonable suspicion to think that Sanchez was in the country illegally. Is, is that roughly his uh, contention there? Yeah, that's basically true, and the, the, the contention is, is basically there is no reasonable su- suspicion that justifies detention, and really what the Coast Guard officer was relying on was his um, uh, race and uh, nationality in deciding to, to, to detain him and to investigate his immigration status. That really was the rub here uh, that led to um, the Ninth Circuit's decision. Yeah, we might specify here the boat was not come across in waters nearby the border between the U.S. and Mexico. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of Ventura or off near Catalina, but well within U.S. territorial waters, right? Yes, well, it's hundreds of miles from the U.S.-Mexico border, that's that's for sure. Yeah. And, it, I mean, he, he had lived here for many years, had his, had his own boat, and unfortunately had some engine troubles in the boat, and that's how the Coast Guard came upon him. There's no indication that he had somehow been violating the law in any way when he was came into contact with the Coast Guard. Okay, so now the panel opinion here authored by Judge Paez agrees with Sanchez that the suppression motion should have been granted, but there's sort of a quirk here. Even remanding and ordering that motion to be granted, there's some sort of, sort of predicate evidence that already exists demonstrating Sanchez's status. What is that evidence? It was previously sort of voluntarily tendered by Sanchez to the government, right? Well, he provided information to the government to get some immigration benefits. He's eligible for some benefits, and he applied for them, including something under a special agricultural worker program, some family unity benefits. And he he provided the government information, and you know that information was accessed by the Coast Guard officers. In the end, that's when he was uh, after they they detained him, they checked information, and then then they they arrest him for immigration violations. Based on information provided, he had provided, provided the government, you know, some employment authorization and this family unity benefit program, and that, that is discussed in some detail uh, in Justice uh, Judge Paez's uh, concurring opinion, 
where he quotes extensively from uh, the, you know, the late Harry Pregerson's original panel decision talking about how it seems very unfair to rely on information provided by the government in showing that somebody is in the country unlawfully because that information was voluntarily provided to the government and now is being used against um, Mr. Sanchez. Yeah, yeah, that point, though not really central to the, the holding here, was, as you say, dwelt on by the panel to, to some detail, as Judge Paez cited from Pregerson's earlier writing. Is a interesting question. Ha- has it been dealt with by courts previously? Because in those programs, presumably, if the government is creating those programs, they're is some mutual benefit between the folks that avail themselves of the program and the government. Here, you know, would presume allowing folks to join the workforce to a certain extent and help the economy that way. And so obviously Judge Pius's argument goes that if, you know, at the time those programs are administered or when an individual enters into the program, if the government were to say, well, just so you know, you know, we can use this evidence against you in any future immigration case, it would chill participation in those programs that would seem to, to have benefit on, on both sides. Have have courts really wrestled in any depth with Pregerson and now Pies's concern of the government using this information willfully given to prosecute immigrants later? Generally speaking, there hasn't been a, a, an issue that's come up much in litigation. I'm not aware of any sort of definitive court ruling in the case. But it, it is a very topical issue because there's a great deal of concern now in various immigration programs, including the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, that information provided to the federal government to get relief under the DACA program might be used by uh, President Trump and his administration to deport uh, non-citizens from the United States. So so this issue really is topical right now, because people are trying to figure out, well, what information that I voluntarily provided the government might eventually be used uh, in immigration proceedings at some later point. And my guess is that Judge Paez, in filing this this concurrence, in highlighting this issue, uh, wanted to make sure uh, that there's at least a bookmark in place, a protest into the use of this kind of information by the government, information that was willingly provided by the government, part of an immigrant immigration benefit program, and uh, was was provided to give relief from removal. And, and Judge Pregerson's view, and Judge Pai is in quoting it, adopts that view, that it would be unfair for the government to take that information and use it to deport somebody from the United States. So then the, the opinion moves along. So notwithstanding that problem that were the case remanded and the suppression motion granted, Nonetheless, Sanchez wouldn't really have a remedy because this other evidence would go in. The panel says if there are certain instances in, in rare cases where a violation of the regulation, here that one saying that the officer needed reasonable suspicion, uh, if, a, if a violation is egregious, then not only would there be a remand um, granting the sort of order we've talked about already, but that, in fact, removal proceedings could be terminated altogether, I believe, without prejudice. That greatest violation standard, that's something new, right? Well, it's kind of peculiar to immigration law, and it comes out of a Supreme Court decision, uh, a case case called Lopez Mendoza, and and basically a removal proceeding is a civil proceeding, not a criminal proceeding, and generally the exclusionary rule only applies to criminal proceedings, Mm -hmm. not civil proceedings. But the Supreme Court said that in certain egregious circumstances with egregious violations of the law, the exclusionary rule in throwing out evidence might apply in a civil removal proceeding. And the courts have decided a a handful of cases dealing with this egregious violation exception. And in a number of cases, the courts have found that reliance on race or nationality in immigration stop and seizure and detention did constitute an egregious violation that could lead to suppression of everything surrounding the arrest. So, so we, we don't have a good deal of case law describing the egregious violation exception generally, but we do know that exclusive reliance on race is an egregious violation that justifies suppression. 
to the extent you might be able to to forecast with that as maybe the the main thing that we know about the egregious violation standard, how far do you think it might reach? How many cases could it encompass? I suppose, um, you know, how how narrow of an exception, how rare of a remedy do you think this uh, egregious violation would be? I think it's a fairly narrow exception. The exclusionary rule is not a particularly popular or often invoked legal rule in either the Fourth Amendment criminal situation or the civil situation. And I think that the courts reserve it for for those kinds of violations uh, that just seem so patently unfair and suppression, the extreme remedy of suppression, withholding evidence, is justified. So, so I don't see this as having a, a, a huge impact. I do think it's another sort of decision that makes it clear that reliance on race alone to question somebody's immigration status is inappropriate, unlawful, and uh, isn't going to be tolerated by the courts. That's not to say that if you relied on many other factors besides race that, that we'd see many egregious violations of the law. I think that race is one of those special indifferent kinds of characteristics that get, that get more careful scrutiny and if it's the be-all and end-all for an immigration stop, you can expect a court to, to look carefully and probably throw it out. So maybe, for instance, if the relied-upon indicia are, you know, say, race plus maybe proximity to the border, that might still be okay. But the, the focus I, I here think, is uh, if it's race only, that's not, it's not okay. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Race, in some, you know, race is not supposed to factor into the analysis, but... You know, even if you consider race, if there are a variety of other factors, the Supreme Court has has said that you know all that all the circumstances, the totality of circumstances, might might weigh in favor uh, of a stop. But if you're relying exclusively on race, that's certainly not going to be sufficient. Okay. Certainly an interesting opinion. We'll see what sort of effect it has. And uh, always good to have uh, one last word here from, from Judge Pregerson. But uh, we'll leave it there for now. Dean, Kevin Johnson from UC Davis School of Law, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. An immigration roundup would hardly be complete without a quick visit from our immigration beat reporter, Chase Felici Antonio. He's here to discuss some new Department of Justice guidance to immigration law judges. Chase, thanks for dropping in. Good to be here. Okay, so tell me a bit more about this decision and, and what exactly the form is that it takes. The Attorney General issued, what, a direction, a decision, a order that specifies some limiting of the discretion that immigration judges have to terminate to end removal proceedings? Is that roughly it? Yeah, that's basically the our idea here. He, as the head of the Department of Justice, of which the immigration courts are a part, can refer specific immigration cases to himself and then essentially act as a one-man Supreme Court, issue a decision, and that decision becomes binding on Supreme Courts and the Appeals Board, Board of Immigration Appeals. So he did that here in two particular cases, were deportation cases where folks concerned were they were going to be ordered deported, but the judges in each case has decided to terminate the cases, throw them out, and based on essentially their own discretion. They said dockets are busy, and because of various other factors, they, they were not going to uh, go ahead with the deportation. They were going to let the person remain in the country, which, and that's essentially the power that he's trying to rein in here by saying that power isn't specifically given to them by law or regulation. Judges can terminate cases under certain laws, uh, under certain regulation, but they can't just do it essentially because they want to and, and they're busy. And so he, he's trying to essentially clarify what, what what is already the law. Okay. So there is no sort of portion of any regulation that might say cases could be terminated or dismissed for these enumerated reasons or also at a judge's discretion. That's uh, basically what the attorney general is saying, that there must be kind of some stated uh, legal basis upon which case can be dismissed. Otherwise, it, it has to go forward. Right. He is saying that. And it's also not incredibly clear how often judges just dismiss cases out of hand because of a busy docket or something like yeah. that. There are statistics on terminations every year, but 
it's not broken down in terms of, of reasons as, as far as I can find. Yeah, that's going to be my next question is just how many cases this might reach. It sounds like there's no central repository of information staying when discretionary terminations occur. But do you have a sense from talking to folks how significant, what, how big of an impact this decision would have, how many cases it would reach? So in the answer to year 2016 and 2015, which are the most recent years where data is available, there were over 20,000 terminations of, of completed cases in the immigration courts. But as you said, it's, it's not clear which of those were discretionary and which of those were, were based on law and regulation. Although I did talk to a spokesperson from the National Immigration Judges Union, Judge Dana Marks in San Francisco, and she said it's, it's really hard to tell, impossible is the word she used to tell how many cases this is going to impact because uh, she said her and other judges already kind of followed this pattern that Sessions is laying out. They, they already only terminated cases based on regulation or if, uh, for example, the Department of Homeland Security did not meet their burden of proof to prove that someone should be deported from the country. So it's something that isn't really well tracked and it seems to kind of remain to be seen how many uh, cases that this, this will really affect, how many judges this will actually practically bring in. Then if this is not that much more than a just re-articulation, a re-enunciation of the way the process mostly works already, I suppose it must seem like a largely sensible move to most practitioners in, in the immigration context. But to any extent, have you heard from folks that think that this decision encroaches to any degree into the purview of immigration judges who might feel that the attorney general is trying to sort of force their hand and compel them to decide cases a a particular way? Well, it's interesting because the immigration judges union did not seem terribly up in arms about this, but immigration lawyers and advocates actually were more so than the judges themselves, which, which I found kind of surprising. Some folks that I spoke to who work on the nonprofit side but also represent immigrants facing deportation and are lawyers, they seem to think that it was an encroachment on, on the power of judges because even though there's, there's nowhere that says judges absolutely cannot do this, it was kind of an accepted power. There's certain things in the immigration court that judges have kind of always been able to do uh, that, that haven't been challenged. And their concern was that this would pressure judges uh, to issue final decisions in cases faster. So whether it be a deportation or not, they were kind of framing it within the larger context of the attorney general wanting to speed up deportation cases and get through a very large backlog, which he has repeatedly said is one of his large policy goals. You have a very busy beat. I'll let you get back to it. Uh, Chase DeFelice, Antonio, thanks for hopping on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for September 21st, 2018. Thanks for more time to all of my guests, Andrew Arthur, the Center for Immigration Studies, Stephen Kang, the ACLU, and Kevin Johnson from the UC Davis School of Law. So thanks to Chase DiFelici Antonio and my production staff here, particularly Nick Perez. Of course, thank you for tuning in. It is tremendously appreciated. Don't forget that by making it to the end of this episode, you are entitled and have certainly earned one California CLE credit Find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears to collect it. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.